So Job chapter 10, God's holy word from the Old Testament, the 10th chapter of Job. Reading the entirety of that chapter, give your attention to the reading of God's holy word. Job 10. I loathe my life. I will give free utterance to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. Does it seem good to you to oppress, to despise the work of your hands and favor the designs of the wicked? Have you eyes of flesh? Do you see as man sees? Are your days as the days of man or your years as a man's years? That you seek out my iniquity and search for my sin? Although you know that I'm not guilty and there's none to deliver out of your hand, your hands fashioned and made me And now you have destroyed me altogether. Remember that you have made me like clay and you will return me to the dust. Did you not pour out me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? You clothed me with skin and flesh. You knit me together with bones and sinews. You granted me life and steadfast love and your care has preserved my spirit. Yet these things you hid in your heart. I know that this was your purpose. If I sin, you watch me and do not acquit me of my iniquity. If I am guilty, woe to me. If I'm in the right, I cannot lift my head, for I'm filled with disgrace and look on my affliction. And were my head lifted up, you would hunt me like a lion and again work wonders against me. You renew your witnesses against me. You increase your vexation towards me and bring fresh troops against me. Why did you bring me out from the womb? Would that I had died before any eye had seen me and were as though I had not been carried from the womb to the tomb. Are not my days few? Then cease, leave me alone that I may find a little cheer. Before I go, I shall not return to the land of darkness and deep shadow, the land of gloom like thick thick darkness, like deep shadow without any order, where light is as thick darkness. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. So we all have moods, some more than others, but none are immune to a bit of moodiness. And our different tempers can give us kind of two sides at times. We can be nice or mean, talkative or quiet, brooding or carefree, active or lazy. As is expressed in art and literature, any one person can have two faces. Though where this is the norm for us humans, we generally don't think this applies to God. For the Lord is the eternal one, undivided, ideally consistent, and stable. God is eternal and unchangeable in his being without variation or shadow of change. And this is definitely a true teaching of Scripture. And yet the Bible is also clear that the Lord doesn't always express his unity to us. That is, God can reveal himself and relate to us in different ways. The examples abound as God can be revealed or hidden, present or absent, speaking or silent, 
wrathful or merciful, the Lord can shine his face upon us or turn his back to us. He is perfectly good, and yet evil comes from his hands. God is one, but he can act towards us with different moods, with various faces, which is exactly what Job is struggling with. Previously, Job knew God only as his close Lord and companion, but now the Lord is only dark and furious with him. Therefore, Job continues to wrestle with the different moods of God, and he does so in a way that adds more maturity to our faith for us. So we are halfway through Job's third speech that covers chapters 9 and 10. And in the first part, Job grieved how God acted towards him in pitch-dark wrath. The Lord had not put him in the individual scales of justice where there's an open trial, a mediator, and a measure of mercy. Instead, in the terror of of the divine warrior, God marched on him in complete fury, which shuts down prayer, intercession, and grants no day in court. God has hidden himself from Job in his infinite power and his crushing condemnation. So Job wished for a trial. He ached for the day in court to know the reasons for wrath and to have his uprightness vindicated. This, though, as you'll remember, did not seem possible as Job could not find God. His own words would fail him, and God is too mighty. Thus, Job closed off his thoughts in chapter 9 by begging that God would remove his rod from him and so that he could speak without fear. A conversation with God, free from terror, is all he needed, but it was not so. And so he continues to hate his life. I loathe my life. My soul detests my existence. Yet sometimes life becomes odious. Polite Christianity tells us that we should never think so, as we should always be joyful and grateful. But this fails to recognize the reality of pain and tribulation under the sun, and it conveniently ignores the wrath of God. Indeed, as we have seen, Job's most searing trauma isn't the festering boils, the poverty, or his dead kids, but it's the dark side of God. As one scholar put it, God has become a phantom to Job. Before disaster struck, Job and God enjoyed an open and peaceful covenant relationship, but then evil struck for nothing. God became a phantom hidden behind the impenetrable cloud of fury. And Job is vexed unto death by this change in his Lord towards him. Sure, the physical torments and shameful poverty are part of the thorns of God. They are the concrete expressions of being cursed of God. But the deepest wound for Job is spiritual. The withdrawal of God's love and the injection of condemnation is the axe to his heart, splitting it asunder. And with God as a phantom, life is loathsome to Job. The flowers may be in bloom, the birds may be singing, 
But under the curse of God, every breath is detestable. Nevertheless, Job refuses to cease talking. He will keep up the complaining of his bitter soul. Strep throat has nearly killed his voice, but with his raspy accent, he will keep speaking. And he has a definite topic on mind. Job is going to hold that trial by himself. Remember, he despaired that it was impossible to have a day in court with God. This was not going to happen. And so he desires to hold his own mock trial. He will give a hypothetical court case. He cannot have a real one, but if he could, this is what Job would say to God. This would be his opening and closing arguments. I would say to God, Job would ask God to stop condemnation, stop condemning me, Lord. And he would file for a motion for disclosure. Why do you dispute with me? What are your charges against me? Job knows that God has submitted a writ against him, but the charges have been withheld. Punishment has been poured out on him, but none of the crimes have been published. So Job would request to unseal the indictment against him. Next, Job has a line of questioning for God, which zeroes in on the judgeship of God. He probes how God as the judge, whom he knew in the past, has become the God of the phantom as he is now. And so he asks, is it good for you to oppress? Is it profitable for you to do wrong? For God, you reject the work of your hands, and yet you shine a light on the scenes of the wicked? Job brings up again here how the wicked prosper. And he contrasts this with himself as a work of God's hand, which includes both creation and sanctification. Grace has formed Job into the most upright man whom God himself bragged about. But now, evil men see the light of day, while he, as a product of sanctification, is rejected. This discrepancy, this is the discrepancy that Job would ask about. Next, Job wonders about the judicial procedure of God. Do you have the eyes of a mortal? Are your days so short like that of a man? Well, of course not. Now, as humans, our judicial eyesight isn't always very clear. We miss facts. We read evidence with bias and prejudice. Our wisdom is limited, and we are prone to laziness and hasty judgments. But not so God. His knowledge is infinite and without limit. God is not confined to the restrictions of time. There is no past or future for him, but he sees all as if in the present. Sure, a human judge could flub up towards Job. A man could condemn Job and acquit the guilty. There would be nothing out of the ordinary for such a mistake. But God, surely not. And yet, here is God pursuing and hounding Job and the sin of Job like a bloodhound. Job is sure that God knows he's not guilty, but he still treats Job as the worst sinner. And this is Job's first line of questioning in this hypothetical trial. He would make inquiries about the manner of God judging him. 
he would try to make sense out of God as judge and God as terrifying phantom. Though now, Job shifts to a second line of questions that focus on God as creator. Enshrouded in wrath, clashes with God as judge and with God as creator. This tension is put in a nutshell in verse 8. You fashioned me, and now you destroy me? Job is dismayed at feeling disposable. Now, most of the products that we deal with are meant to be used and tossed out. And others are such poor craftsmanship, you know that they will not last. But if you spent thousands of dollars on the finest bespoke cherry wood and sugar maple, and you devoted hundreds of hours to craft the most exquisite dinner table, you would not then set it on fire immediately. To destroy such elegant and profound craftsmanship defies logic. It's a sin against natural law. But so it seems with God, which Job expresses with his own masterful poetry by which he calls God to remember his own creative expertise. He says, remember, God, you formed me from clay. From a lump of lifeless mud, you fashioned the brilliant beauty and intricacy of my humanity. Now, Job does admit that he'll return to the dust. This is not a negative here, but it's a reference to Genesis 3. This is a factual acknowledgement of the reality. We go from mud to dirt. We are the temporal stage between clay and dust, but the middle time is marvelous. Thus, Job hymns the artistry of God. He says, he poured me out as milk. He curdled him as cheese. With a Ph.D. in cheese, God curdled and aged Job as a truffle-wrapped Gouda from heirloom's goat milk. Now, this image of God as master cheesemaker most likely refers to conception and the earliest development of the fetus in the womb. For next, the metaphor shifts to that of a seamstress. As a professional tailor, God clothed Job with skin and flesh. He wove into him bones and sinew like silver embroidered on silk. God sewed, cut, and custom-fit Job as a three-piece English suit. The tailored poetry here vividly displays a fetus growing into a lovely infant in the womb as if in a 3D ultrasound. As cheesemaker and tailor, the masterful manufacturing of Job by God is brilliant. But the brightest gem comes as the cherry on top, verse 12. It says, you made me with living loyalty. God acted towards Job with a covenant of life. Yes, the term for steadfast love here assumes a covenantal arrangement, and it is paired or connected to life to indicate the nature of this covenant. Job understands that God made him within a covenant of life. He acknowledges that the life given by God was a covenantal act that assumed loyalty. To create something assumes the goodwill to keep it in existence. Theologically, Job provides us with another verse that speaks 
about the covenant works in Genesis, the covenant of life. Thus, the covenantal creative skill of God naturally grows into providence. Your care has preserved my spirit. You made me, and your providence keeps me. Indeed, Job employs the covenant of life to him personally. He's not focused upon what happened in Eden, although this is assumed, but it is on what the Lord did to him. God masterfully curdled and wove Job into a covenant of life. The precision artisanship within Job requires providence to protect and sustain. And yet this gorgeous craftsmanship of God's life-giving covenant hits a snafu. For next, Job admits that God has a hidden purpose. God has plans concealed in his heart, which he does not divulge. Some other strategy of God is at work that he does not understand, for God's preserving oversight has become the constant surveillance of law. If I sin, you watch me. If I'm righteous, you don't allow me to lift my head, but you have filled me with disgrace and affliction. Job does concede that if he's guilty, then woe to him. If he is guilty, sure, he will accept his punishment, rightly so. But if he's upright, God will still not acquit him. If Job does lift his head, God will hunt him like a lion. The Lord trophy hunts Job and mounts his stuffed head on his wall. The Lord increases witnesses against him. His wrath turns up more heat and fresh troops besiege Job. Far from relenting in his fury, God darkens the cloud of his displeasure. He mounts up more pains and torments on top of Job. The Lord discloses more evidence against Job's guilt. Remember, Job's friends <clears throat> excuse me, were supposed to comfort him, but so far, they've only been accusing him. How does such wrath and cruelty, ever-growing, fit with the covenantal craftsmanship of God? And thus Job asks, why was he even made? Why, God, did you bring me from the womb? What was the point of ever even fashioning me? Job feels like a Stradivarius violin that was used for firewood. He's the golden ring that was melted back down. Thus, he again wishes for non-existence. Would I have died before any eye saw me? Just as I never would have been, then I would have been. Be. From the womb to the tomb, this is the journey Job desires. From mud to sand with no interval in between, this would be better than what Job suffers now. For some undisclosed reason, God has given up on this covenant life with Job. His providential care has become the divine hunter of Job. The loving creator has turned into the phantom of wrath. Job knows not why. He wonders why God created him in the first place. And with life so agonizing, womb to tomb would be better. And yet Job does have one request. In this mock hypothetical trial, Job has a single real petition. And it is 
leave me alone. Lord, I only have a few days left to live. Can you just stop hounding me? Leave me be so that I may taste a spoonful of cheer. Job is so tired of being sad. His broken heart has scraped him like butter over too much bread. Can he just have one day to feel happy? Just one hour of joy would be so nice before he dies. The melancholy of Job is palpable. His depression is too real. When all you feel is sorrow, just a moment of joy seems like paradise. Happiness becomes that one cold swig of water before you succumb to thirst. And this tidbit is all Job asks before he descends into the deep shadow of blackness. For death will lower Job into the land of gloom and darkness. For the halls of Sheol are lightened by torches of darkness. The flames of the pit emit deeper shadows and greater disorder. All is black and ever-growing darker and more chaotic. And this picture of Sheol is not a neutral one. This is not the common destiny for all, but this is the cursed afterlife. The black shadow of Sheol is the holding tank for hell. Again, the curses of life foreshadow one's eternal fate in the Old Testament. And presently, Job wears the condemnation and imprecation of wrath. Abject poverty, loss of family, outcast of society, oozing boils, maggot-infested, these prophesy of Job's eternal condemnation. They testify that God is sending Job to hell. His ulcers scraped with a broken piece of pottery has killed his hope of heaven. There remains no more, there remains for him no comfort in the afterlife. And so Job merely asks for one happy hour, one good day before he tumbles into everlasting darkness and shadow. And this is how God has become a phantom of wrath to Job. This is the dark face that God is showing Job, which tears him up inside. He agonizes how this fits with God being the all-knowing judge. The Lord knows Job is righteous. Why so much terrifying judgment then? He laments on how much destruction can be in harmony with the beauty of God as creator. How can the covenant of life become the hunting expedition of Job? Why did God fashion something so marvelous only to crush it? Non-existence surely is better than the eternal darkness where Job thinks he's going. And as you can tell, Job says all of this with a tone of sadness. He's distraught and lonely. Later on, Job will get more testy, more defying and quarrelsome. But here, his depression controls his tone. He feels wounded and abandoned by God as creator and judge. 
Lord, you fashioned me as artisan cheese just to toss me in the trash. You wove me a robe of royalty just to start the fire. Job is hurt how the Lord of the covenant of life has become a phantom of fury. Therefore, the text of Job is yet working on us to sympathize with Job. This poetry of Job is teaching us, is teasing out of us mercy and pity. For the text is pulling us in to feel with Job, to understand the realness of his pain and distress. Bildad and Eliphaz haven't shown any honest compassion at Job, but we should. For what Job is enduring still happens to us. Sure, our uprightness is not as tall or straight as Job's. Our agonies are not as deep and dark as his. But his basic burden and trial we to experience, which is the silence of God. It is the losses of life that read like the pure wrath of God. This is when God acts towards us in a way that's as a mysterious phantom and not as our creator. A broken heart that can taste no joy, a feeling of spiritual abandonment, prayers and answers, mounting evils with no relief. God's hidden will imposes these on us, too, from time to time. We are far from perfect. But so often, personal sin has no explanatory value in such dark days. Thus, Job's hurt gives you words to express your pain. He unfurls his sadness to teach us about the human predicament. He vents his despair to show us how to have compassion. Job honestly instructs us. On the other side of God, mysterious, dark, and distant can be our Lord towards us. This does not negate God's holiness nor his unity, but it reveals how his infinite greatness excels far above us. In fact, providentially, Job's lament here of of unanswered prayer, of only wrath, Dries our, or draws our minds towards Gethsemane. Remove this cup from me, a sorrow unto death. The Father's wrath was laid upon one whom God knew was righteous to the othermost, Christ. In Job's sorrow, we hear the grief of our Savior. For this covenant of life that causes Job despair directs us to a better covenant, one of grace ratified in blood, the blood of Jesus Christ. The covenant of life is beautiful and wonderful. It did commit God to us in providence and sustenance. But the covenant of life still said obey. This covenant enshrined retribution. It kept the door open to wrath. But the covenant of Christ speaks of grace It declares Christ's alien obedience for us. The covenant of grace shuts the door to retribution and wrath, as Christ satisfied justice and appeased the Lord's fury. 
Likewise, in the gospel, you hear and receive a word that assures you of the Father's love and Christ's tender presence. The gospel is God's better word and sweeter word to you than the word of providence. If you attempt to read providence to determine God's mood towards you, then you're lost in a mystery. As Job admits here, there's a secret plan and design of God that providence doesn't make clear. In providence, God is mysterious and hidden as if behind a cloud. And our simplistic read of providence typically goes as far as, if if good happens, then you're good. If bad, then you did something wrong. Pray for a good thing, it will be answered. Ask for something unhealthy, no request granted as well as we tend to always want to relate what happens to our behavior or to the behavior of others. In this way, we attempt to maintain some control. If I'm a good little boy or a good little girl, and if I pray fervently enough, then surely I will have a wonderful spouse, a job I can be passionate about, and kids that will always love me. If I pray for the salvation of others, God must answer it. But no, providence by definition means we are not in control, but God is. And his control to us reads mysterious, hidden, moody, incomprehensible. We do not have a clue what God is doing from beginning to end in providence. Thus the rub of Job's suffering is that he's stuck with providence alone. He smells his rotting ulcers, and all he can think is this means hell. What else would he think? This is the only word God has given him. But in Christ, you have a word that's far more secure and true than providence. You possess the gospel. As special revelation, released from heaven, announced by Jesus during his earthly ministry, and heralded by the apostles, the gospel swears to you in Christ, you are forgiven. You are adopted, justified, and filled with the Spirit. And no matter what providence dishes out to you, no matter how many unanswered prayers you have, Jesus is your Savior. And the Father smiles upon you. Sure, sometimes we reap what we sow. Our sin, our folly, our weakness brings painful consequences. Other times we are afflicted afflicted for doing what is upright and pleasing to Christ. And at other times, our pain comes for no reason at all, at least as far as we can discern. And yet, after a week of mysterious and chaotic providence, your Savior brings you back to him in worship, and he declares to you the eternally unchanging gospel. He reminds you of his love. He ensures you of his his grace alone. And Christ's resurrection confirms your own resurrection unto the light of heaven. Thus, may you not read providence, but may you never stop reading the gospel. For the gospel is your anchor of grace, the seal of your assurance, and the compassion of your Savior. 
thus founded in the gospel, we are then enabled to rejoice in and praise God for his infinite goodness and grace, no matter what providence has in store for you. Good days, bad days, abundance, or poverty. By the grace of Christ, we are enabled to say, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, the name Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our salvation, the resurrected one who guarantees our own resurrection. Amen. Let us pray.